Welcome to episode three of the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, March 4th, 2022. I'm the Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here with Chris. Hey, Dad. How's it going over there? It's going really great. It's our third episode. Wow. And today, we are going to share some feedback. We're going to discuss Bitcoin news. We're going to touch on the history of Bitcoin from a primary source. That would be Chris. That makes me sound old when you say that. We're, we're going to dig you up. <laughs> and we, as always, have some corrections. No, impossible. No way. <laughs> we actually got some feedback from, I think, Russia based on the email address. Okay. Though the question was in English. And just to remind our listeners, you can always send feedback to bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or at bdadpod on Twitter. So this question is from Lost Faith in Paper Money. That was the signature. And she, she, he, I don't know why I'm saying she. They. They. Anonymous person behind a pseudo-anonymous name said. <laughs> I feel like it was the font that was in the email. It was sort of a, a softer lettering, and I just got that, mm -hmm. that vibe. Yep, yep. I have a question for Bitcoin Pod. I finally decided to buy some Bitcoins. Gosh, Bitcoins. Some. Wow. Plural. Some. Wow. <laughs> Congratulations. Found an exchange, but how should I store it? I heard I shouldn't leave my coins there on exchange. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah. I, especially, I think right now, especially if they are in that region, definitely don't leave them on exchange. Sure. So the opinion of the pod is that you should not leave Bitcoins on an exchange. If you're going to do that, just buy a regulated Bitcoin ETF if it's available in your country or some other regulated product. Yeah, because your point there is if you just want in on that price action, there are actually ways to do that with less risk in some sense. Because really when you're storing the coins at an exchange, that's, that's really when you're trying to buy and sell on a frequent basis. And if you're not trying to buy and sell on a frequent basis, you want to self-custody those – is that the right word? Self-custodial, those kinds of things. So that way – if for some reason the exchange had an order to shut down, perhaps, maybe the exchange got a list of customers they no longer could work with, you would not be affected by that. I, I actually think that exchanges have been asked informally to ban Russian users. And regardless of the actions of someone's government, I don't think that that should mean that regular people don't have access to their savings or, their, or the financial system. That seems very punitive. Especially at a time when the currency is just being devastated, right? So you could, you could have a situation where certain people in that area, maybe not even, you know, not even at Moscow, but just in the general area, they lost 30% of their wealth in a couple of days. And this is a tool that they could use that lets them get outside that system and preserve wealth. And the flip side is if you take that tool away from them, then you're taking the wealth away from the people. They never have a chance to push back against their government because their government knew this was coming. It planned for this. They're rich. They're set for life. Their assets are protected. They're good to go. So when we make the people poor, we just prolong the current regime's power. Yeah, I think that in many ways, money is power. And so if people have lost their savings and are struggling to even survive, how do you expect these people to stand up for their rights, for what's right, to be politically active, to push for positive social change? 
I think it's very difficult and perhaps impossible. Disenfranchising normal people from the financial system, I think, is just a terrible policy. Yeah, yeah. Now, the tricky thing for them could be getting something like a hardware wallet right now. So, I, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I think that how you store your Bitcoins really depends on sort of what you have lying around. Because I don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good in this situation. So let's go from ideal to less ideal. But any of these options, if you can execute on them right now, and you you feel like you have to, or you feel confident in your ability, I would say you, you should go for it. Yeah, maybe do it while you're in the more ideal category. So uh, a friend of mine, uh, Alex, who co-hosts the Self-Hosted podcast with me, he is uh, looking at getting a, a Trezor right now. So that way he can, you know, when, when it's easy to get one, when there's stock, when there's supply, you get it now, you, you learn it. But uh, that's definitely going to be the ideal scenario, in my opinion, would be something that is a, is a hardware solution for people. Sure. So the best option is you have a hardware wallet. And we've talked about some hardware wallets that are okay. Chris just mentioned the Trezor. The Trezor is a bit cheaper than the cold card. The Trezor also supports a lot of altcoins, which frankly makes it less secure. At the same time, as long as you're not being attacked physically, any of these hardware wallets will be fine. So Trezor, cold card. Another one is the Ledger. The Ledger is not open source, so I don't recommend it, but any of these three will probably be okay. If, if you have a hardware wallet, what you do is you use the hardware wallet to generate a seed. So it'll generate some words, 12 or 24, and you write these words and you hide them and they, they should never go on the internet. So never take a picture of them. Don't store them on cloud storage. Do not. That was a, a big mistake from the... Bitfinex scammers, right? The crocodile of Wall Street. <laughs> We should probably have a clip of one of those songs. Actually, we shouldn't. No. It's so bad. It is bad. It is bad. It's also fun to watch, but it's bad. <laughs> so these words are your backup. And as we said in a previous episode, your back, th- these words encode the large number that protects your, your keys inside this wallet. And so you can use this to recreate the wallet if you ever lose the physical wallet. Now that you have those words written down, the hardware wallet will connect somehow to a software wallet on a computer or on a smartphone. And what's going on is, as Chris explained before, Bitcoin exists on a, on a communications network on the internet. And so the wallet needs to be able to have an internet connection to interact with this blockchain and send and receive funds. Well, technically only to send funds. You can receive funds offline, but that's complicated. No need to get into that. I would say if you have an Android phone, you've got a lot of options for wallets that you could have on your Android phone. Some that I've used and I think are okay are the Samurai wallet, which is a privacy-focused Bitcoin wallet. Another one is the Blockstream Green wallet by Blockstream, the Bitcoin company. What about the Blue wallet? Have you tried that? I was just going to I was just loading that up on my phone. <laughs> I like the Blue wallet and the the blue wallet is very simple. It's available for iOS as well. And the nice thing about it, in my opinion, is later on, if you want to just sort of continue down the journey and add your own node, it's super easy to connect your blue wallet on your phone to your node, even over Tor. I wonder if Sparrow Wallet has a mobile implementation. 
If you don't want to use your mobile phone, you can use any personal computer to download Sparrow Wallet, which is a very good Bitcoin wallet that can connect to your own node, but by default will reach out to the Sparrow Wallet Electrum server, and that's run by a guy named Craig, and I think Craig is pretty cool, so I don't think he's keeping track of your data. At the same time, he could be hacked, so it's better to run your own node, but if you're pressed for time, Let's go for security over privacy. What do you think, Chris? Yep, I I think so. I think something that is software-based definitely has more risk, like a Sparrow wallet or a Blue wallet, because you're taking on the risks of whatever might be wrong with your PC, any vulnerability it might have, or your Android device or your iOS device. That is absolutely a risk, and that's why a lot of times people recommend hardware wallets. However, well, well, hold on. You have to have somebody going after your machine. It's, the risk is only as great as the vulnerability you may you may be facing. Well, the thing is, Sparrow Wallet can be used with a hardware wallet. Oh, yeah, sure. Or just as a hot wallet yeah. on your computer. Yeah. So if you've got money on an exchange and you're concerned that you might not be able to withdraw it, just set up Sparrow Wallet on a computer. Ideally, if you have an old computer that you don't use much, install Linux on it. Yeah, that's what I was going to, yep, I agree. You know, install Sparrow Wallet and just use that computer for Bitcoin and you should be totally fine. If you can, that's the way to go. Um I, I am the least comfortable with people doing this on Windows, and the reason for that is it is possible this is true on any OS, but on Windows it's more likely you could you could get scammed. Click a link in a web browser. So don't use the computer for browsing the web. Don't use it for that kind of stuff if possible. And if you're looking for something you can run on your computer, something that I think both of us probably like to see is something that's open source. And I think that's always pretty important, like Sparrow Wallet. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I would say if you're starting out Use one of our suggestions because I have a friend who I was talking to about this recently and we talked, unfortunately, he hadn't really been paying specific attention to what I was saying. And he actually got scammed out of a couple hundred dollars of Bitcoin because he used a web wallet. And yeah, so, yeah, that's 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 my big do not do. Do not use a web wallet. Those do, are the highest risk. Do not go on Google or Yandex or any search engine and search best Bitcoin wallet. Do not do that because the first couple hits may be scams. Sparrow, a new version of Sparrow Wallet came out eight hours ago. And, record. and it's so cool. They have this new implementation of something called PayNIMS. So you can generate a single code that you can give someone or post on a website. And when people send to that code, it will automatically generate new wallet, uh, new addresses. So you don't reuse addresses. It's really good for privacy. It's very cool. Mm-hmm. Very nice. And uh, I guess my other last tip would be make sure whatever computer you use to store your Bitcoin or whatever your coins might be, uh, make sure it's all up to date. Make sure all your patches are installed and try to keep it off the Internet as much as possible. If you have coins like, um, I don't know, Ethereum or some other coin, maybe I'm imagining an emergency situation. Maybe you're just getting stuff sent and you need some a place to do. Uh, I, I don't really have a lot of suggestions, but in the past I have used the Exodus wallet to store Bitcoin and some of the altcoins, the most popular altcoins, including um, DAI, which is a stable coin, which could also be handy in these situations. Right. I would like to say that with DAI, it's an algorithmic stable coin. And so my concern, which I can't provide proof, but my concern is that algorithmic stable coins would probably fail in moments of crisis when you need the most because 
They're designed to be stable most of the time, but in extreme situations, sometimes the algorithm that maintains them can break. Yeah, so definitely, that's definitely seems like a possibility. Yeah. I've been watching for that, keeping a close eye on it. And I think people are working very hard <laughs> to try to make sure that doesn't happen. But I think it's absolutely a risk to consider. For sure. I hope that Saul or answered yeah. the question for our listener. We'll, we'll list these wallets on in the show notes and also i'll look for a, a a sort of a beginning bitcoin guide that might be helpful because if you are currently in russia or in ukraine and the banking system is falling apart and your money is about to be confiscated i would suggest moving faster rather than slower so yeah and honestly i know this sounds like fear-mongering but i really don't mean it to be i think if you are in a country where this is not a problem right now, maybe you're in a Western nation, maybe it's time to start getting ready for some of this stuff, not because, oh, some great crash is coming, but because these things are best done when not done in anger, when not rushed, right? That's the time to really wrap your head around this stuff. Yeah. The thing about Bitcoin is it in, is in many ways insurance on things not going well in the current world. What I was just saying to Chris before we aired was what is the, the kryptonite that destroys Bitcoin? It's good politics. It's sound money. It's a social contract that respects everybody. It's... Politicians who stop lying, right? Sure. It's, it, it's utopia. Yeah. That's it, what kills Bitcoin. Because the thing is, our current payment systems, our banks, our credit cards, they work great when everything's going well. They work great when there's not political policy that is using these systems as a weapon against whoever's the enemy du jour. If the world is going well, and you have trust in your leaders and in your society, and you think the next couple years and the future is very rosy, then maybe Bitcoin isn't necessary for you. At the same time, clearly for many people in the world, that's not the case. And so I think it's very reasonable to have a non-zero allocation. Just a rainy day fund, if you will. Yeah, that's how I would put it too. It's, and then different people can have different levels of all in. I have found that as time has come on, has come along, I've actually become a little more convicted. I've, I've become even more sort of thinking maybe I should stop wasting my money on stocks and I should be putting that money into Bitcoin. Like I have been honing more into Bitcoin as time has gone on just because so many of the fundamentals seem like they are absolutely necessary for the time we appear to be entering or are already in really. And it really, to me, feels like perhaps one of the safest places I could put any extra little capital I might have right now. Granted, it's a huge risk, right? As we record, price is going down. Price go up, price go down. I find that all to be short-term stuff. What I look at is the next three to five years. We got a note from a listener uh, in Matrix just said to me, you know, hey, I, I listened to the show and I I, uh, I bought 10 bucks in Bitcoin and that was like a few days ago. And now it's worth $8. I don't get it. I thought you guys said number go up. So you have to you have to think about it in those terms. It's a long term thing. It's a three to five year thing at the minimum. So if you want to put money in today and take money out next week, it's not going to be that. That's not what Bitcoin is going to do for you. But if you want to put money in today and take money out in five plus years, or maybe not even take it out, but have it be worth a certain, and now you have an asset on your balance sheet. That, I think, is probably, I would hope, the correct expectation to have. 
So I think for the listener who's disappointed that his Bitcoin has fallen in value over three days, what I would say is, okay, it's worth $8, but how much are your dollars worth? So you had $10 three days ago. How much are $10 worth today? And you'd say, well, it's worth $10. But the number of dollars in the world is an arbitrary number. It's decided by many things, and some of those things that decide the number of dollars in the world are centralized, like the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve. And so what, what's different about Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is a system where the number of Bitcoins is known. We always know the number of Bitcoins, and the transmission of Bitcoins is decentralized and uncensorable, but every system needs engineering trade-offs. So what is the trade-off? The trade-off is the dollar price. The dollar price is the, I don't know, the, the release valve of Bitcoin. It, this is where there's volatility in this dollar price. And there's only volatility because we don't really know how valuable Bitcoin is for people in Ukraine right now who can use it to take all of their physical possessions that they can't run away, uh, run away with. They can dematerialize them into Bitcoin and then they can cross a border with it. If they tried to, obviously can't carry your house, but imagine you tried to carry some some gold or a big bag of money across a border. Well, they just you, take it. They just take it. I mean, you have no rights at the border. So obviously for these people, Bitcoin is very valuable. For me, Bitcoin is also very valuable because it enables me to do all sorts of cool things. For example, I um, I mentioned the NSARS protests in um, in Africa on a previous episode. I was able to financially support women standing up for women's rights in Nigeria from the comfort of my couch. And if I tried to do that via the banking system, it might not have been possible, and I probably would have had a lot of very suspicious eyes cast on me. Yeah, that would get logged. <laughs> okay, we'll be watching this account, but we'll also take this fee. <laughs> That's the, those two things would have happened. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> yeah, it is one of those things. That's interesting. I, I, I think that's the most powerful thing we're watching right now is uh, people from afar can assist with no middleman. And that is uh, honestly, you know, a very powerful thing that I don't even think early on in Bitcoin's early days, we were even really considering that element of it. Yeah, that'll get into our history section in a bit. But first, an ad read. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the self-hosted show from Jupiter Broadcasting. hey this, And uh, Chris is involved in that, in case you didn't know. <laughs> the self-hosted show is a podcast about running your own digital infrastructure and having fun while doing it. Host your own media server, control your home IoT devices with a Raspberry Pi. Hey, Chris, how many Raspberry Pis do you have? Oh, man, at least six. Wow. Probably only two that are, well, three that are in active production right now. Mm. Pie hoarder over here. I, I guess. Yeah, I should start selling them for a premium right now and put it into Bitcoin. <laughs> well, Chris certainly used self-hosting as an excuse to get many Raspberry Pis, and you can do so too. The self-hosted show will give you ideas, guidance, and a fun community to experiment with running way too many computers at home like Chris does. Check it out at selfhosted.show or search for the self-hosted show in your podcast app. Okay, and now we're on to news. Last week, we had some very negative privacy news. The Ethereum DAO hacker had been de-anonymized because of a problem with the Wasabi Wallet CoinJoin implementation. But we have some good privacy news this week because Chris Belcher has posted some news about his new CoinSwap protocol on Bitcoin. Now, this 
seems like exactly what we needed right when we needed it. So you seem pretty positive about this. I don't really understand the details, but it seems like this may be solving some of the issues we thought Wasabi was experiencing. So CoinSwap is very different than CoinJoin. Oh, okay. Yeah. And um, I love it because anything that punches chain surveillance companies in the face makes me smile (laughs) because these companies in many ways are worse in my, in my mind, they're sort of better and worse than the traditional financial surveillance of companies like Visa, MasterCard, your bank, your ISP, yeah. your telecom. Oh, my gosh. All of the data brokers who just exist to move data between companies and sell it up and market up. Yeah, it's a whole industry. We need, to, um, we need to have a game to see how many times we can say surveillance capitalism in each episode. <laughs> but, but basically, chain surveillance companies watch the blockchain and they sort of... Uh, use heuristics to guess when there's a transaction, what the transaction means. Like, are you sending money to someone else? Are you sending money to yourself? And then they make guesses about these flows of money and then and they connect it with data from exchanges and other uh, sources of know your customer, KYC data, to guess whose funds are whose and to, you know, generally make life difficult for them. So what a coin join does is it's a group of people all making a single transaction together, and it's it, it basically mixes the history of all of these coins. And so you still know the history of the coins before they went into the coin join. But after the coin join, the histories are all mixed together. So you have to keep track of many, many more coins. And it, and it sort of very quickly becomes exponentially more difficult to identify who owns a single coin. That's the idea, at least. Unfortunately, Wasabi Wallet sort of screwed that up, apparently, allegedly. So with CoinSwap, the idea is that what if we could just exchange our coins? Mm, Okay. It's like the name sounds. You swap them. Yeah. So if Chris has three Bitcoin and I have three Bitcoin and we want to exchange them, what CoinSwap enables us to do is in a trustless way, so we, we can do this with people we don't know, to sort of create multiple transactions. So it wouldn't be like I send Chris three coins and he sends me three coins because first of all, you'd be able to detect that. You'd see like three and three on the blockchain and you might be able to create a heuristic like chain analysis companies already do to um, to say, okay, that was, a, up, yeah. that was a coin swap. So we think- Seems that, pretty straightforward if you do it like that. And, and the other issue is we need to do this trustlessly. So we'd have to create some- some sort of contract. So if I sent Chris three coins, he would have to also send me three coins. And so it's pretty possible to create a contract where we would both send each other the same amount and the, and the, uh, the transaction would fail if one of us didn't do it. There, there's probably a clever way to do that. But what Chris has done, Chris Belcher, that is not Chris on the pod, though I'm sure you could if you <laughs> yeah. put your mind to it. Yeah, I'll go up into a mountain retreat and uh, sit right down and get to work on that. Okay. <laughs> As he created this coin swap protocol. And what it enables us to do is to create a series of transactions that will fail if one of them doesn't happen. So they all have, all these transactions have to happen for, for any of them to happen. And what it does is it looks like first I send one Bitcoin then Chris sends half a Bitcoin, then I send half a Bitcoin, yada, yada. We keep on going until we've both sent three Bitcoins. And now at the end of this series of transactions, which I think could go on over a long period, because a lot of chain analysis surveillance is based on timing analysis. If transactions happen close together or in a certain pattern, 
they can identify it as a certain type of transaction. But with CoinSwap, we can do this transaction where we slowly or quickly trade our Bitcoin, and you know, we, maybe maybe if we're in a rush, we could set it up so it'll happen over a day. But maybe we're not in a rush, so we set it up and it happens over a month. This is very hard to detect. And what's really really important about this is Chris always says Chris Belcher. That is sorry, this is getting confusing. Just call him Belcher. Belcher. Belcher always says that CoinSwap is steganographic. Yeah, I have no idea what this word means. But I know what steganography is. But oh, what steganographic. What is steganography? That's where you can use like an image to hide. Um, uh, you can encode text into the blank space of a JPEG or a PNG and embed an actual message inside a JPEG or a PNG. So you're looking at a picture, but there's actually a message encoded in there. Okay, I think this helps me understand because I think what Belcher means is that a coin swap transaction looks just like regular transactions. And so what this means is if even let's say 2% of bitcoiners are using coin swaps, it means that all bitcoin transactions could be a coin swap. So now Chainalysis when they say hey uh, looks like bitcoin dad has been sending money to some protest or whatever or has been buying something we don't like they have to assign a probability to this transaction and now they have to add the fact that it could have been a coin swap into yeah, their probabilities right. they don't have like a signal that tells them this is a special transaction it just looks like all the other noise so basically belcher has found a way to swap the history of coins invisibly on the blockchain and this is just going to really screw up anybody who's trying to make a business out of following people on the blockchain. I love it. I'd love to see this built into wallets too. You know, you just have you turn it on and the wallet cuz what I don't understand is sounds like there must be something kind of negotiating that process. So say you and I wanted to do a coin swap and we decided to be clever, we were going to do it over a 3 month period. You almost need something like a smart contract, but I I know they must not be using a smart contract for this. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think s smart contract is a very subjective term. Maybe not the EVM variety of smart contract. There's just no way, right? I was going to say, I think Ethereum and the altcoin community have sort of bought the smart contract term. They think they own it. Yet the first smart contracts were on Bitcoin. A multi-sig wallet is a smart contract. Right. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Huh. This is definitely something I want to look into. I've been thinking in the back of my mind, again, like, why not do it before I need to do it? Why not? Why not consider doing if it's safe? Do do it when fees are low. Right. Do it for one sat per byte. Get some privacy because you never know when there's going to be a knock on your door or a scary phone call from someone who claims to be in a position of authority and now they're suddenly very interested in your in your money. That's a very uncomfortable situation. What business is it of anyone what you do with your money or where you keep it? I think uh, I think we all need financial privacy, not just for practical reasons, such as we don't want to be attacked uh, and our money stolen, but also we need financial privacy simply to have an open society. If any person in government or in power can look up all our transactions, they can use this information against us. You know, I might be. I might be afraid to donate to political causes I believe in if it's possible for the police to look up my transactions and to punish me if I am supporting a political party that might not be elected yet. 
Ironically, this is the very thing that makes Bitcoin not great for illicit activity either. <laughs> um, and so I suppose you'll have people claiming that that's what that's we'll use these tools. But I think you and I have made the argument here that, no, there's perfectly legitimate reasons for everyday people who are not doing nefarious, illicit human trafficking to want to do this kind of stuff. And it's it's one of those things where it, it's it's a form of privacy. It's a form of protection. Yeah. And, and, and for the crowd who thinks that privacy is a sign of guilt or that you want to do something illegal, to them, I reply, legal and illegal are concepts that change over time. Women wearing pants. This was illegal 150 years ago. Right. You don't know when what you're doing will become illegal. And secondly, if I want to do something illegal, we all need the choice to be able to break the law, frankly. You know, if you don't have the choice to break the law, then you don't have any sort of free will. So people need to have the, at least the freedom to, goodness, I'm, I'm. Make a bad choice. Make bad choices. Yeah. But I'm, I'm here advocating for criminality. It sounds well, like. Well, it's, I think, pretty obvious you mean within reason. You're sure, not saying I mean, like, I grab a gun. Reason. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that good money is used for everything. And that's. Good things and bad things, legal things and illegal things. And I think you're also trying to say what society considers good things and bad things, legal things and illegal things, changes over time. And And I think it's a concept you understand as you get older. But if you're younger and you've only seen things one way, I think it's a little bit harder to wrap your head around. I may be being ageist there, but that's what I suspect. Well, and, and also, it's not like there is a small sort of law enforcement industrial complex in the world. There is so much money in law enforcement, in policing, in anti-terrorism. So I don't understand. If you're spending all this money on these very sophisticated tools and trained professionals who are like searching out illicit activity, why do you need to do all this financial surveillance on everyone? It seems a bit lazy. And it seems like there are plenty of tools and laws to prosecute criminals that don't involve removing financial privacy from everybody in the world. It's It's clear to me that a lack of privacy is so inherently dangerous to free societies, to democracy, to the common person, that it just shouldn't even be acceptable. Yet it seems that somehow we live in a world where privacy is considered a luxury or a threat. Yeah. And somehow we've kind of normalized that it's just being reduced and reduced and reduced. Well, except for some of these technologies that are being built. I mean, that's what's that's pushing back against the tide. Perhaps one of the reasons why we get so excited about it. Yeah. And on the subject of privacy, one of my favorite newsletters, which is free online this month in Bitcoin privacy is back. This is an amazing if very technical newsletter that's actually published on GitHub by the open source journalist known as Janine, not her real name. Janine has some really interesting uh, news about privacy and Bitcoin. I think this episode, this uh, article, this episode of the newsletter edition. Yeah, or release. release? I guess. I, guess. It, I think this edition of the yeah, newsletter. Edition has some interesting news about Wasabi version 2. The Wasabi Wallet team have a new implementation of Wasabi, Uh and they've had a security audit, Uh which, frankly, I think is of little, not that much value, because basically their security auditor identified that they'd misspelled a few things in their code. But what's really important is sort of the the architecture 
And I think that would be very difficult to audit. They'd probably have to put it out in the wild and see if the next DAO hacker is caught or something. Mm. This may be just to help people with some of their concerns. You know sure. what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I, I, it seems to me that the Wasabi Wallet team sort of need to address the problems with Wasabi V1 or the alleged problems because I've just never heard them successfully defend the product. To me, that sounds like, well, maybe you can't then. Maybe they know, and so they're just looking to build the next thing. I guess I don't understand the desire to hide from obvious problems. It seems to me that if you just took it on the chin and did a mea culpa, you'd be forgiven. Yeah, it's hard to get in their head, right? Because who knows? Maybe it's some sort of competition thing. Maybe the market's so hot for competition, like they don't want to. They don't want to give their competitor any in. You know, who knows? It's hard to get in these people's head. I just uh, hope we get the word out for people, and I'd love to see them keep working on this. I mean. An audit of this nature, like you said, isn't very substantial, but you could look at it as a step in the right direction, and perhaps it will encourage more of that kind of thing, maybe. Sure. At the same time, a lot of altcoins and DeFi projects, they do security audits, and the project itself is, from the ground up, a completely nonsense borderline scam or outright scam. And what the security audit is used for is a way to sort of add credibility because at the end of the day, the security audit is done by someone who's sort of, you're, you're paying them to do it. So, you you know, do they, will they really write something super negative? And if they do, will you even publish it and publicize it? Not really. Right. And what are they going to do with it? If that information you're paying them, they're just going to sit on it. They're not going to like release it and shame you. <laughs> you're their client. Yeah, that's a very good point. Something to keep in mind. It's like, it reminds me of those old websites I used to visit that were like, this website's been verified by Norton Antivirus. And they'd have like a little banner on there. It's ridiculous. Is Norton the antivirus company that wants to install a crypto miner on yeah. your computer? Yeah. Yeah, wow. they did that. They did that for a little bit. Pretty wow. incredible, so, actually. So, because I've heard the the claim that antivirus is basically a virus, and then your antivirus software installs a crypto miner, and it now is a virus. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Isn't that great? It's one of my favorite stories of like the last couple of years. One of my absolute. It just makes me laugh every time I read it. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to get into this today, but if we ever have a an empty week, I think we should talk about the other big cryptocurrency antivirus story, which is McAfee. Oh, I mean, what a wild character he was. Yeah, he was. Unfortunately, he seemed like a very difficult person. Mm -hmm. And he was involved directly in many crypto scams. Oh, really? I didn't follow him in his later later part of his career. I, I had an interaction with McAfee Software uh, years ago when he was still there as far as I know. And, uh, it was a very bad interaction. <laughs> so I know he's a bit of a hothead. Do you mean the software was bad or do you mean you called McAfee? John McAfee is a bit of a hothead. Yeah. Oh yeah. So John McAfee called you up and no, no, he didn't call me up, but it, we were, I was on a conference call that he was on, uh, for uh, some clients that were testing software on a new version of windows. And yeah, he ended up yelling and walking out of the room <laughs> on the conference call. You just and you just picture right because he doesn't say anything for the entire call until he's pissed and like you hear something slam and then you hear him like as he's he's yelling as he and then the door slams and he's gone and then everybody's just quiet <laughs> and we all just sit there <laughs> and then we just resume. <laughs> <laughs> that does seem like John McAfee. I think in his later years, before he was arrested in Spain for his 
uh, alleged role in a series of crypto pump and dumps. Oh, jeez. What? <laughs> so what I had had heard that he was doing was basically he was uh-huh. he was sort of uh, posting on Twitter while floating around on a yacht with a lot of guns because he was a big gun nut. Sure. Yeah. And he was sort of taking requests, so you could basically like pitch him your altcoin scam project and then he you give him a bunch of the coins and then he tweets out to his followers okay the next moon is going to be chris coin you know that's i hear from people on youtube that are creating cryptocurrency content that they get five or ten scam emails a day and of course they don't pitch themselves as a scam and i finally feel like i've entered into uh, this arena because our coder radio program on jupiter broadcasting got an email last week about somebody who wanted to pitch us their they're like going to take over DeFi token and was it even code, like it. code related it wasn't like no heard, they just wanted to be an, they just wanted to advertise okay cuz i'd heard that there were some DeFi or new altcoin projects that were purporting to solve the funding open source developer problem like gitcoin or something like that and to me, this is just so nonsensical. Oh, yeah. Here they are. So this is a person who works at a growth marketing firm who is reaching out on behalf of growth, them. Growth marketing. What a what a scammy description yeah. for a business. I don't want to say the name, but I do have the name up here so we can take a look at it uh, afterwards. But this is the outfit here. Um, I don't want to give them any. But they say we are currently – This is I'm reading from the email they sent me. We are currently in a, quote, hyper growth phase. We're experiencing strong demand to integrate. <laughs> <laughs> so uh they want to know if oh, i'd like wait to hold on are you sure ads. are you sure they weren't trying to pick you up well it's funny too it's like okay well, I, I, i've heard that in a bar someone comes up and says i'd like to hyper integrate <laughs> i have strong growth right now um it's just funny because if they're going through what they say is a uh hyper growth phase that's the exact words they use then why do they need to market on my podcast it's a puzzle i, I guess <laughs> it's just such a great opportunity for yeah. you better jump on that yeah well you know DeFi is going to be big so I'll, I'll talk about it on the coder radio program <laughs> i'm sure your host will love that yeah he would <laughs> so speaking of sort of sc- scammy things mm. OpenSea, the large uh, ethereum nft marketplace has just banned iranian users Oh, really? Don't they know that it's uh, Russian users that it's in vogue to ban right now, not Iranian? I mean, maybe they'll get to Russian users eventually. The reason I find this interesting is that the idea or my understanding of the marketing around NFTs is that there are these digital artifacts, some would say art, and you can trade them peer to peer and it's a it's a it's on a blockchain. So it's decentralized and great. Yeah, except the major marketplaces are completely centralized. It's and, like exchanges in that way. Yeah. So if and the NFT community is very I think they're I think it's basically dominated by venture capital backed businesses that are by their very nature centralized. Yeah, I agree. And so it means that if you have a centralized business making the market and setting the price of these things, if that business sanctions you, you can't really buy or sell. So is it really decentralized? I don't think so. I look at OpenSea as the AOL of NFTs, right? Like there will be, or the MySpace, I think there's going to be many that come after that just totally wipe out OpenSea. NFT is a feature. It is not a product. And they have built their entire business on NFT being the product. And so, yeah, when nobody else is fulfilling that need, sure, absolutely. 
But FTX has already gotten in the game, and they already have a better system than OpenSea does. Coinbase has announced that they're going to get in the NFT game. And all of them are going to do it better than OpenSea can because they already have massive, massive development teams and a massive customer base. Now, I'm not arguing for the validity of getting into this business, but what I'm saying is where I've always looked at OpenSea is I've always looked at it as a temporary thing that's bootstrapping the market. That's also how I look at like these Bored Ape NFTs. It's like, yeah, these are silly. Funny enough, my kid wants one, but I don't really ever, I'm never going to buy one. However, down the road, if it can prove the idea of a sellable token of sorts, I'd be interested in it if the implementation was right. I don't like any of the implementations really so far. So I'm sitting back and I'm waiting and I'm just not even really bothering with this stuff. I'm bullish NFTs on Liquid. Yeah, yeah, I'd be interested to see where that goes. Because frankly, I think that the NFT for art, it's like, in my view, the dumb implementation of the technology You've invented the the airplane, and you're using the rotors to sort of slice your bread. You know, you're, yeah, yeah, you're, you're misusing it. It's a meat it. slicer. <laughs> yeah. What I think would be really cool is basically a financial market where you have derivative products, bonds, and their their income streams, and and all of these financial products represented as either tokens or NFTs. So, for instance, what if I could take some sort of loan, and I could say take the default risk and somehow tokenize that and then i could take the income payments on the on the on the loan and tokenize that and maybe i could create nfts because each bond is very specific to who what what it was for what the money was spent on so it doesn't make sense to create a general crypto token but maybe an nft that directly refers to that bond and i think this could be really efficient because right now the financial industry has huge companies with warehouses full of accountants who are basically figuring out, okay, we received a bond payment. Who, where do we send the payment to? Which hedge fund, hedge fund or retirement account owns this bond? But if you could do this with NFTs on some sort of open platform and it was just a protocol, you know, you could cut out all of these middlemen. Yeah. And you could, you could still see where you'd have managers who add value, but as a customer, you could shop, which would be huge. It'd be much easier to shop. I'm also bullish long-term on NFTs. And I had a recent kind of, speaking of Coda Radio, we just talked about it in the most recent episode. I kind of just had a, a recent rethinking within the last two to three weeks where I got a VR headset and I did it finally to just try it out. I wanted to see what it was like. And then I built myself sort of like this infinite office in, in virtual reality. I realized at that point, you know, if I could hang up some Star Trek posters in here or something that I liked, something that, you know, maybe an audience member creates. But you can do that anyway. Yeah, I'm saying if I could create, if I could find something like that online and then move it between apps or move it between virtual environments, move it between vendors, that would that would give an NFT value to me. So I would take the counter on this because I don't think that these walled gardens of VR environments or apps want to have an open standard that lets users move value between them. Because right. Then you get rid of their moat. Yeah, they want to. I agree. That's like building a bridge over the moat. I mean, obviously, for the user, it's way better if all of your stuff is interoperable. And that's why we have Linux and open source. But for all of these tech companies, their whole business model is creating a moat around their product and trapping users inside of it, which is why... Your interest in VR is frightening to me, honestly. <laughs> well, in that version, my version of it, 
may never materialize. Yeah. And I would not really be interested in a different version that develops. So I may lose interest over time if that's not the direction it goes. Okay. I, I didn't mean to sound critical. I could, no, I just, no. I, like, I, I follow where you're going, right? Because right now it's like owned by Meta, which is – Right. Because it sounds great. I mean honestly, yeah. it sounds so great. I want to you know, be a disembodied entity in a bubble of computer screens. That sounds fantastic to me. But if Mark Zuckerberg is in there with me, that now sounds terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, it's got to, you know, you got to have, you got to have something decentralized to really, to really make it stick, to really appeal to me. And boy, oh boy, are we nowhere near that right now. Because everything that's called like Decentraland is anything but. It's not decentralized at all. So it's going to be a while. And I am also a big dreamer. I could dream, I could dream real big. Every Steam purchase should be an NFT. And then I could take that to the Epic launcher. I could take that to Stadia. I could take that to Steam. I could I could go to the to the manufacturer of the game's website, have them reg- register my NFT somehow with my account, and then I could download the game directly from them as well. That would be an ideal for me. Another use case, just super quick for NFTs, and I don't know if this is the right application, but I love this idea of some sort of like fractionalized real estate purchase. Where right now I'm doing a DCA on Bitcoin, I'd love to do a DCA onto some sort of real estate NFT or some sort of real estate that is something I could do digitally. And I don't know if that needs to be an NFT necessarily. But I love that idea. And I could see NFTs being a way to that. I see why that's attractive. At the same time, I think it's problematic because especially for real estate, you have to think about how does this thing on the blockchain enforce my claim on this thing in the real world? And you pretty quickly have to conclude that there needs to be like a company or a legal entity that that represents you in court to sort of enforce this ownership claim. So I don't think it really makes sense to to build it on a blockchain. There are some financial companies that that already do this sort of fractional real estate, fractional art investing, and I've looked into them, and they are scammy as all heck. Because basically, there isn't a way to enforce this fractional claim outside of the company. The company owns the asset, and then you have an account with them that says that they've credited a bit of this asset to you. But if you have a problem with that, where do you where do you go? You can't you can't take your money and leave because it's tied up in this supposed fractional share. So you have to sell it using an internal marketplace that they control. They control the price. They control the fees. You've basically put yourself in the control of this entity that gets to decide what price you pay and, and which is uh, sort of the open sea situation right now. Yeah, I got to say. Yeah. I know I don't think it's very likely because I think in order for what I was just saying to happen, you'd have to have kind of a whole shift in how society embraced this technology. Real estate agents would have to be in all of it so much upheaval, it's just never going to happen. <laughs> Not in my lifetime. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, hard, you know, I want imagine. It, it's just when I see this open sea stuff, I think to myself, this is still pretty early days. And it's built on top of technology that still feels pretty rough, still pretty early days as well. And speaking of that technology, maybe I need to stop doing this speaking of. I feel like I've done it three times already. It's because I keep throwing you these transitions. <laughs> it's, it's so good. The OpenSea is, is based on Ethereum mainly, right? So Ethereum is – so two, two major pieces of the Ethereum infrastructure is this service called MetaMask. And MetaMask is sort of a wallet, but it also does some settlement things in the background for exchanges. It's, it's kind of a big deal in Ethereum. And then Infura. And if, we've ever, if I've ever complained about Ethereum nodes being too large to run on your home computer and needing too much data, well, Infura solves that problem by running Ethereum nodes in AWS for you. Except 
Infura and MetaMask blocked certain areas amid a crypto sanctions implementation. Yeah, and I saw a story about Venezuela, but it appears that was actually just a technical mistake, although it reveals the capability. Exactly. So what's funny is the first article is, oh, they're enforcing sanctions on Infura and Venezuelan users can't use their MetaMask. And then the next article is, oh, hey, sorry, that was just a technical implementation glitch. We're, we're not imposing sanctions on you. Yeah, even though the error message actually said, like, no longer do we, like, it specifically was in reference to sanctions and not being able to do business in that area. So they obviously are building that feature in. Right. And so this probably comes as no surprise after our discussion of the DAO hack. But just in case in 2015, Ethereum performing a hard fork to reverse a transaction where an attacker stole funds out of a poorly written smart contract. If, th- if that sounds to you like a centralized system, I would agree with you. But let's say since then, your position is, well, Ethereum's decentralized it's now. It's grown a lot. It's grown, grown a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's not going to be any more hard forks. Well, it turns out that the centralized corporations that run the infrastructure that makes that unlocks all of the valuable quote unquote use cases of ethereum these are centralized companies and guess what they're vulnerable to political pressure which should be no surprise because every company is every company in this world is created via cor- via a government charter and if you create a company via government charter, it means that government gets to decide whether your company gets to continue to exist or has to close. And so these companies are building in the ability to censor users into their infrastructure. And you could argue, okay, well, it's not at the Ethereum base layer, you could still build run your own node, except I argue you can't really run your own node because Ethereum produces a block every 13 seconds. So if you've got Venezuelan internet, I don't think that's going to work out for you. Yeah, that's not going to be good. And then you'll be forced to run it on some sort of centralized infrastructure, which will suffer the same issues. So that is a particularly tricky problem. God, I don't really know how to, I don't even know how to deal with that because it seems like ship has sailed. There's so much Ethereum. Like you're looking at, so you know how the, uh, there's been people that have been donating cryptocurrency to Ukraine. And a lot of it, I mean, a good portion of it has been Bitcoin, but not the majority. I heard it was a large amount of Ethereum was donated. Yeah. Yeah. So 612 Bitcoins have been sent. 5,851 Ether has been sent. And 2 million, 2.9 million USDT Tether. So that's, and that's also an ERC-20 token. It's also on Ethereum. That's $24 million of Bitcoin and $17 million combined on Ether. It's, I'm looking at the numbers though, like just in terms of like actual amounts of coins, 612 Bitcoin, 5,851 Ether. If, if we could send dog coins, we could donate a billion <laughs> oh, yeah, of them. Right. That's, that's a very good point. I think, although it just, I, when I looked at that, I thought, you know, these, these alternative coins are playing a notable role in this. And it's like, this number got a lot bigger because these other coins were involved. And my downstream realization of that was, it really feels like, to me, Ethereum is here to stay. It's always because of because of the adoption it's reached now, it's never going to get folded back into the Bitcoin kind of a thing. Like it's never going to go away. I think I might agree with you, except it's clear to me from the way that Ethereum companies are vulnerable to sanction requests, the way that Ethereum has failed to decentralize their protocol so that most of their nodes are run by a company in AWS. Mm -hmm. It means that 
Ethereum is technically able to be turned off mm-hmm. or severely disrupted by government action. And that seems possible to me. At the same time, I think the Ethereum price has been stimulated by a lot of venture capital money going into Ethereum companies and projects. So maybe the game theory is that these investors who are essentially legacy financial system elites will lobby to prevent legislation that would damage Ethereum, maybe? You know, that would also kind of explain why Proof of Stake has such strong representation in DC. It definitely does. Yeah, and I could also just, what I kind of wonder, if, and maybe it's more world events like this one, unfortunately, but these kinds of world events where we see countries get sanctioned and users cut off, teach us as a community the differences between the currencies and the platforms. Ethereum is maybe more of a development platform, and Bitcoin is more of a hard asset. And perhaps those roles get clearer and more defined as these world events, like the situation we're seeing in Ukraine and or the Venezuelan blockage, that's just helping us as a community differentiate the primary features of these different coins, perhaps. I agree. I think that we discover the limits of a system in crisis. Right, exactly. I would say we're not really that deep into the crisis, and Ethereum is already blocking people and censoring people. So where does this continue? I don't know. It doesn't seem promising to me. And the scaling issues of Ethereum, the high fees, it just seems like they have a lot of challenges. And frankly, I'm not, I'm just not really sold on the fundamental theory of the project, which is let's build a blockchain with a very expressive smart contracting language. And yeah, I just, yeah, I, I don't think that's a good call because I don't think that blockchains scale. I you don't know, I'll think tell it's you, a good idea. I'll tell you, uh, it sounds exactly like the kind of thing a bunch of developers would do. You know, they'll build a platform like this that has so many issues that they have to then build tools like ZK rollups and whatnot to try to like compensate for the different issues. And they will just keep building and they will keep building and they will keep building. And you could just ask the folks at Redmond, Washington, who are writing Windows NT source code still like they just don't clean house. They don't rewrite. They don't throw it out. They just keep building until it's perfect because they'll get it there one day. You just watch. Oh, wow. I mean, Microsoft buying Ethereum or the Ethereum Foundation, that would be the that would be the, the merger of my dreams. Oh, man. <laughs> but just to define one term, mm. uh, Chris said ZK rollups. So ZK rollups, do you want to explain it or shall I give it a poke? Uh, I mean, yeah, you probably do a better job of it. I think maybe we should, if I were going to start, I'd probably try to explain there's a layer one and a layer two to these things. Yeah. So basically, Ethereum has... Initially, Ethereum had very low fees. And so one of the Ethereum memes around its creation in 2015, was it 2015 or 2014? I think it was 2015. Yeah, I'm not sure. I want to say 2014, but you might be right. I'll look, I'll look while you explain. You're you're probably right. So one of the, the memes around the beginning of Ethereum was, hey, look, look at these low fees. You know, this is a high throughput, you know, alternative to Bitcoin and, you know, because it has faster blocks. Yeah. By the way, you were right. July 30th, 2015. Okay. So what happened is with adoption, Ethereum fees went to the roof to the point where today, I think the average fee rate is several hundred dollars for a transaction, which I would say kind of makes it not useful for money. What the Ethereum developers are doing is they're building layer two solutions. So layer two means it's like another protocol that is built on top of Ethereum and it can kind of group together a bunch of transactions on this layer two, and then just do one transaction on Ethereum and save some money on fees. Yeah, it rolls up the transactions. This layer two 
is, in my opinion, not a layer two. I would argue that Bitcoin's Lightning Network is a layer two. Because with Bitcoin Lightning, you and I make one transaction to open a channel, and then we can send money back and forth in this channel forever. And there's never a footprint on the layer one blockchain. This is, in my opinion, a true layer two, because this layer two is off-chain. But with the ZK rollup idea, you actually take all these layer two transactions and you compress them into the call data of the Ethereum block. So actually, these transactions do leave a footprint on the main chain. And the fee savings you get, maybe you get like a uh, 10x fee saving. So if it was $40, you'd pay $4, which is good, but it's not exponential savings like the Lightning Network. Yeah, yeah, okay. And It is an improvement for sure. But also, who's really paying this cost? I would say it's the node operators. Because what you're doing is you're taking transaction data, and instead of having to pay expensive transaction fees, you're putting this data into the into this, this section of the block called the call data, which node operators have to store, but they don't get paid for. Or, well, miners don't get paid for it, and node operators don't get paid either way. They just have to store it all. And this is part of the reason why, in my view, Ethereum nodes are sort of kind of subsidizing the rest of the network because they're carrying a lot of data and I feel like the the node's data requirements are kind of being hammered by the Ethereum development in a way that's not really very friendly. It's kind of like assuming that, of course, you'll run this node. But actually, the Ethereum chain states like 192 gigabytes. That's a lot of RAM. I, I don't know too many people other than myself who has more than 192 gigabytes. <laughs> Do you <at> really? <laughs> you madman. Wow. Yeah, that's a great point. I haven't really thought about the storage impact on the node operators. Because if you're adding that to that field, every transaction is going to have that. The other area that I th- I think could still be a potential issue is you have to have application support for these layer two ZK rollup solutions. You you have to build the platform. So in, in a common case, it'd be like an NFT platform in, in, in this case. Your NFT platform has to be built to support that. And there's so much momentum out there around tooling that just talks directly to Ethereum. It means that... Even after Ethereum has full support for these ZK rollup solutions, it may not have a huge impact on the actual gas fees of the Ethereum network. Wow, they've shot up just as we're sitting here too, actually. They they will probably still have the bulk of the traffic on the main chain. And it will take quite a while for new applications to come along, new platforms to come along that support these ZK rollup protocols or blockchains. Like Loopring comes to mind. Like Loopring's been out for years, but nobody's using it. I'd love to learn more about Loopring because I think the new um, GameStop CEO is involved with Loopring. Yeah, Loopring is is going to be used in their NFT platform along with another. It's like two different bits of technology. Yeah, and that whole idea is to save money on Ethereum. But in the meantime, geez, I'm just looking for Loop. There it is. Loopring is like number seventy nine on the list of cryptocurrencies according to Coin Market Cap. My opinion is, if you're out of the top three, you're 100% a valueless project. <laughs> the top the top three, most of those are stable coins. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it'd be interesting to watch that Ethereum stuff because it's going to be playing out over 2022 as potentially they switch to proof of stake, as potentially they integrate ZK rollups. It's going to be a big transaction and a trans- transition, I should say, and it will absolutely have long-term impacts on Ethereum. We're going to see where that goes for sure. We're going to be watching that in real time. I've got my popcorn ready. 
That sounds delicious. <laughs> Our last news story uh-huh. is a story that I think will be in textbooks one day. And I think that this story is a milestone in the history of the dollar world reserve system that started in 1971 when Nixon closed the gold window at the treasury, stopped exchanging dollars for gold, ended the Bretton Woods system, and started the current monetary epoch, which is the dollar world reserve fiat system. And what has happened is that the U.S. White House and some European countries have agreed to basically freeze the Russian central bank's foreign currency accounts. So with legacy banking, every account you have, every asset, is the liability of another counterparty. So for me, my checking account is my asset, and it's a liability of my bank. But with large financial institutions... If, say, the Russian Central Bank has an account with 100 you know, million uh, euros in it, th- these euros are the liability of another bank, usually a European bank or the European Central Bank. And so what happened was, because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, these new financial sanctions are directly targeting the Central Bank and basically closing or freezing their foreign currency accounts. And so the Russian Central Bank thought going into this conflict that they had created a fortress, quote unquote, fortress economy. So they had a lot of foreign exchange reserves. So if the markets got panicky because of all the aggressive stuff, they're war doing and stuff, all the war <laughs> and stuff, all the explosions, then they would have foreign currency, which they could use to buy the ruble and stabilize the price. Mm, well, clever idea. Clever idea, right? Except it turns out that the traditional financial system only works when everyone in the network wants to play nice. And so the political world has decided that Russia is not playing nice, and they have locked out the central bank from accessing foreign exchange reserves that it thought it controlled, to the tune of, I think, several hundred billion dollars. 300 billion, it looks like, potentially. Wow. This is important because if there was ever a doubt in your mind that the numbers in your bank account were arbitrary, here it is. Right, because this this money is just no longer any good, right? They're essentially saying, well, that's no longer money. We don't want it. Exactly. They've, it's, it's, it's sort of demonetizing it. Essentially, if you wanted to put the thought in the mind of every central banker in the world, we might want to move away from this dollar system. We, we, we might want to have some insurance. We might need a plan B. You just did it. Good job. You just did it. And this sort of plays into my thesis, which is that the arrow of our current, like the direction our current monetary system is going in is towards being less good, less good at money, less easy to use, more surveillance, more controls. Less fungible. Exactly. Basically, they said, your money is not fungible anymore. It's This is a Russian central bank dollar, and so it can't be spent. That's just wild. But yet, I mean, not to get political, but yet, they'll still buy oil, right? They'll still leave them, they'll leave, they'll leave the right financial node on the right part of the SWIFT network to exchange money for oil. Well, that's the idea, except it's not known if that will really work, because yeah, this bet. financial system is fragile. It doesn't work that well on a good day. And so... What I've heard is that many counterparties who would be buying Russian oil right now, including Chinese counterparties that didn't sign on to these sanctions, 
they're actually holding off because if they buy that oil and they get a a notice from the U.S. Treasury or whatever. Yeah. Hey, we noticed uh, some transactions. <laughs> they could they could also be cut off from the global dollar based financial system, and this sure. and this is this would be so devastating that it's it's not worth the risk to interact with the Russian central bank. Huh. Wow. So my prediction is that there will be a time in the future. I think one to three years, frankly, when Russia will ask for payment in oil for Bitcoin, and that is a day. When you'll know that we live in a completely different world, because the basis, in my understanding, that the basis of the dollar world system, uh, world res uh, reserve currency system, is the petrodollar. Is the fact that Saudi Arabia, the world's major oil producer, sorry OPEC, mm -hmm. uh, of which Saudi Arabia is a member, right? They they mainly price oil in dollars. Yeah, and so this creates demand for dollars all over the world. Yeah, if you Are anywhere, and you want to buy their oil, you're buying it with dollars. And if you think about how you're doing that, you're not buying one dollar at a time. You're buying a lot of dollars every time, and it's great to be the U.S. because they'd love to give you those dollars. And that really has helped the reserve currency actually stick. And you know, you look at the history of how long reserve currencies last, and the U.S. is definitely kind of at the end of that general run historically, about 102 years. But we also have been entrenched into the energy market like never before. Yeah, actually, you could say that the petrodollar was the weapon that won the Cold War for the United States. Yeah, I, I think that is absolutely true. The, the Soviet Union had to dig oil out of the ground, and the U.S. could just print it. I am skeptical, although I, I, I think it's an interesting prediction. I'm skeptical that Russia could switch over to using Bitcoin to buy or sell oil because you'd have to have someone on the other side, right? That's also willing to exchange in Bitcoin and having. Some experience in banks. That was one of my first jobs in IT. I can say that the tooling and infrastructure would require a total overhaul. The software, the method of account, and the staff that run it would either have to be replaced or totally retrained. And a lot of these people have been in these jobs for forty plus years. Like it's, it feels like it's easy for us to say because we get it. But if you imagine a bureaucracy starting from zero that has all of these established systems that have been in place for 40 plus years, maybe more, getting them to switch to a total new unit of account and methodology seems almost unlikely to me. Seems like it would take them a decade, not two years. I think that's a really good point. And saying one to three years is obviously very aggressive. I feel like change happens gradually and then suddenly, and I suspect we might be in a suddenly phase. Yeah, they are very motivated. But to be frank, I think that they're, that choosing Bitcoin will be the last decision they make in the sense that we always try all our bad ideas first. And so I suspect that before Bitcoin, they'll probably try to remonetize gold because mm. the Russian central bank is actually one of the world's largest holders of gold. And this was an intentional strategy to de-dollarize, I think, around 2014, around the, I want to say, the, the Chechnyan War. Maybe. Yeah. And according to this article we have linked in the show notes, it accelerated in 2018 when some other geopolitical things were going on and the Russians just got started getting dumped in their dollars. Yeah. So they have a lot of gold. Uh, they know how to handle gold. They know how to transact in it. So I, I suspect that they, they may tr try a gold for yuan, gold for, uh, sorry, uh, oil for yuan, Uh, oil for gold, and they'll discover that there's a lot of cost and friction to transacting like that. And then someone will have the bright idea to try Bitcoin, and it'll probably be great, and they'll love it. Hopefully by then, the West has figured out what they need to figure out, 
and we don't view it as some sort of Russia supporting currency in that. That's always my big concern right now. But I think that's going to be a ways off. If that debate comes up, Cynthia Loomis will defend Bitcoin, I'm <laughs> sure. Oh, I'm just looking at the price of gold right now. Jeez. Looks like a crypto stock almost today. So does oil. If you look at oil on the price charts, it looks like a freaking crypto price. Yeah, well, well that's uh, sort of the fun thing about commodities. And this is why Bitcoin is, is considered a commodity by people who get it. Because commodities, unlike stocks or other financial assets, they have a fixed supply. I mean, yes, you can dig more gold out of the ground, but you can't dig it out of the ground today. And the same with oil. Right. And people are looking for traditionally safe places to stash money right now. I mean, I don't have this problem, but some people actually have the problem where they have so much money, they just need some place to put it. Could you imagine having that problem? Just so much money that you just got to find somewhere. So they're going to buy gold. They're going to buy oil. They're going to buy these things that traditionally do well. Crypto punks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Crypt, crypt, crypto punks are uh, an NFT. Yeah. Don't don't store your money there. I, I don't think that's a good idea. No, Bored Ape's much better investment. <laughs> I kid, I okay. kid. <laughs> you know, there were some Bitcoiners who made a joke NFT collection. It was called like Dumb Monkey Bus Club or something instead of Board 8 Yacht Club. And apparently the images are sort of obscene. Now I want it. Okay. Now I got to have it. <laughs> <laughs> it. can be your Twitter profile. Oh, yeah. And I'll get those special uh, hexagon profile image on Twitter, which clearly isn't a mark at all that people are going to ridicule. Okay, so... Crazy. Shall we, shall we move back to history? Back in time? Back in time. I want to set the scene. It was 10 years ago. About 11 years ago, actually. About 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. And Chris was talking about Bitcoin. And A young lad. I couldn't believe it because Bitcoin had just gone from 30 cents to $30 or something. Yep. Yep. Big move. And you were saying it's here to stay. Yeah, you know, I, I actually was pretty surprised because I hadn't thought about that coverage in a really long time. But it's up on YouTube. So many things are. And so I took a look at it. And, you know, I have to say, I think it holds up. Some of the fundamentals that were true remain so. The decentralized nature, the, the aspect of the decentralized consensus system, all of that made it really clear to us back then that as long as even just a couple of machines remained on the network, Bitcoin would survive. And uh, I think that turned out to be true. And it also seemed to us pretty clear early on that there would always be some price, you know, fatility. Is that the right way to put it? Utility? You know, no, price, like... Oh, volatility. Volatility. That's the word I'm going for. Because it it just seemed kind of obvious because, you know, the market's got to figure out what this price is. And they've never had anything like an asset like this before. It was going to take a while. The thing that doesn't hold up, though, watching it, is there's a few things that we were really nonchalant about how you use the Bitcoin back then. There was this really strong drive to prove that it was a currency, that it was digital cash, because that's what the white paper said. You know, it's like the first sentence of the white paper is Bitcoin's a digital cash, right? So how do you do that? You do it by you buy pizzas with it. You buy hardware with it. So the big thing was back then is buy all your mining equipment using Bitcoin. Which was the worst investment in history. (laughs) Just should have kept the Bitcoin. Should have kept the Bitcoin. Uh, during the clip, which we will have linked in the show notes, there's a point in there where I just kind of casually low-key mention that I've just mined eight Bitcoin in the last 30 days. And that, you know, that was about $250 in value. <laughs> wow. So <laughs> ridiculous. What What's really interesting is that everyone took the term cash to mean dollar bills, yeah. like we yeah. spend them. And when I read the white paper, maybe it's because I sort of am a, maybe a monetary history nerd. When I see cash... 
what I hear is bearer instrument, as in, to me, what's important about cash is that cash lives in my wallet that's in my pocket. And when someone gives me cash, it's nobody's counterparty risk. I mean, technically, it's the government's, uh, the Federal Reserve's counterparty risk, but I don't need to worry about a business going out of business. For example, if I have a million dollar credit in my account at Jupiter Broadcasting, I, I would be sweating a little. How do I know Chris is going to pay me out? But if I have cash in my wallet, I don't have any risk that uh, someone is going to monkey with my funds. So that, that's what, that was sort of how I read it. Mm-hmm. For us, it was the, the advocacy that we really focused on was getting places to adopt Bitcoin. And I've, I, I, might, I might be wrong because I obviously haven't conducted an official count. But my sense of it is that more places accepted Bitcoin back then as a result than they do today. Expedia, I bought flights to Vegas with Bitcoin. Uh, hardware vendors like Dell and System76 took Bitcoin directly. I bought computers with Bitcoin. God, if uh, only System76 had kept that Bitcoin, they would be acquiring Microsoft today. Newegg. Newegg would be as rich as Michael Saylor if they kept all the Bitcoin that I used to buy hardware. Every piece of hardware you're looking in this room was bought with Bitcoin. A lot of it through Newegg because they just took Bitcoin directly. Mm-hmm. So much. And, you know, the whole idea was is I was doing my part. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. I put a link to Nick Zabo's paper shelling out under this story in the show notes. And I'm not sure that was the right link, but I just want to mention it because this is a sort of academic paper about a, it's sort of an idea on how you can think about the development of money. I think it's an important read if, uh, if this subject introduces you. But frankly, I don't think it belongs here. So maybe we'll come back okay. to it another day. I look forward to that. Uh, especially if, if mon- modern monetary theory comes into the conversation, we'll be right back to the Zabo paper. <laughs> okay. When I watched this clip of Chris from 11 years ago. It's like a time capsule. It, it really got me interested in this whole transaction versus store of value narrative around Bitcoin. And mm-hmm. I went and I read the uh, this incredible book called The Block Size War. Mm, yeah. It's pretty short and sweet. It's actually posted for free on the BitMEX blog, but you can buy it on Amazon. And of course, it has 21 chapters, like the 21 million Bitcoin. And it's about the, basically this big debate, uh, a fight, almost civil war in Bitcoin from 2014 to 2017. Yep, yep. And it involved some central players in Bitcoin. It was a huge deal. And it was really about what is Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, because so... I'm going to give my, like, I know the ending. So looking back, the way I view it is that what what Chris experienced and Expedia and all these vendors experienced was that in the early days of Bitcoin, there was essentially zero adoption. It had a price, but so few people were using it that the blocks were empty. There were no transaction fees, but the network still worked because Satoshi had designed the method for distributing Bitcoin into the world would be if you mined a block, you got some some Bitcoin that needed to they needed to be emitted into the world to eventually reach twenty one million. Yep. And, and it also it also made the incentive to mine that that a lot of people were willing to do it. Right. And the genius of Bitcoin is not the blockchain. The blockchain is an old technology. It's not proof of work. I mean, proof of work is genius. Adam Back of Blockstream invented proof of work, but he invented it to solve email spam. So basically, there's a lot of interesting technology here, but all of these altcoins and startups that are going to fix Bitcoin because they add this one more piece of technology, they totally miss the point. The point is the system. It's much more clever than any one piece of technology. 
so this system was working, but it was under underutilized, I would say, given its value. And as a result, people were using it as a payment network. I think in retrospect, we can say, well, this was clearly a misuse of the system. And I say misuse because what the last 10 years or five years, seven years have shown us is that layer one blockchains don't scale. You know, when you go from a million users to 500 million users, that's an exponential growth function. Okay. A decentralized network solves for security. It does not solve for throughput. And if you try to make the blocks bigger, yeah, you can double the throughput. But the real problem is exponential growth of usage, not doubling the usage. And if you double the usage, you might break the decentralization. So clearly, you can't scale a layer one blockchain to meet exponential demand without breaking the decentralization and the security. And if you do that, you end up with Ethereum censoring users in Venezuela or users in Russia. So essentially, why was this a big debate? Because it's so obvious in retrospect. You know, it was really, it was two things, I actually think. There was this technological argument that I think the internet loved because it was leaning into that whole transaction. This is a payment system. You're going to buy things with this all the time. We're going to use this instead of cash. We're all going to have this on our phone. You're going to you're going to pay for subway tickets. You're going to pay for gas. You're going to go to the movies with this. Everything, right? And we were doing it. We would. I had all these elaborate gift card websites that I would buy Bitcoin. You know, I'd buy gift cards with Bitcoin and then load them onto my phone and use them as a temporary card. And the big block folks were really kind of embracing that idea. And they were like, "This is the pathway to accomplishing this." And so everybody who believed that idea, which was a lot of people, got on board with that. But I actually think now. And the part that I think turned me off then that was the more dark side of this bit block size war is it was also a play to actually get certain people in a position of some control over Bitcoin. So instead of it being something that's truly decentralized and Satoshi's gone, so there's no one leader, this transition, which was led by one particular OG Bitcoin developer in particular, I think would have put that person in a centralized position of power. It would have represented a change in Bitcoin at a fundamental level that would have altered Bitcoin in a way, looking back, that would have been bad. But I think the long-term damage would have been the centralization of developer power, which we weren't even really talking about at the time. I think those are all really good points. It's interesting to read the history because what happened was that the quote-unquote lead developer of Bitcoin, a guy named Gavin Andreessen, who currently has disappeared from Bitcoin and just totally disappeared. Probably lives on an island. Actually, I think he lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. (laughs) That's sort of the same thing. (laughs) Yeah. I I got really interested in Gavin, and I actually found an old podcast where Gavin and Adam Back discuss this big block problem. And what really struck me was how, to me, Gavin's arguments for increasing the block size were incredibly weak and short-sighted. Essentially, I think that the big blockers, they were very focused on the present, on current adoption, and they wanted to protect these businesses that had grown up around the low-fee era of Bitcoin. Yes. And And they thought that if these businesses fail, that's it for Bitcoin. And they didn't really understand that they were essentially misusing the technology and that Bitcoin was much more revolutionary than competing with Visa. That's where the headspace was. What you just said, it was like, Visa's the target, right? Which is so small potatoes when you think about it. And I think the other thing that would help is if I, if I set the context just a little bit more, there was a stress in the overall community about 
what are we going to do about these fees when we get this user adoption we expect we're going to have? And that was a persistent conversation is these fees are going to grow. We all knew what the numbers were going to be because you could do the math. And so there was there's a constant conversation going on about what are we going to do one day if this is going to destroy Bitcoin when these prices get so high? And it was a bit of a mild anxiety the entire community was experiencing that I think also opened the door to this debate. At the end of the day, there sort of is only one solution, and that's to embrace a technological solution. Gavin's original proposal was to increase the block height, the block size from one megabyte to 20 megabytes, a 20x increase in initially, and then over a 20-year period to eventually increase it to 8,000 megabytes. What? Like his idea was that, well, if you follow Moore's law, every smartphone will have a fiber connection in 20 years. And that was clearly, clearly not the case. We still have bad internet in the United States. You know, we still need Starlink for many people. Right. And it didn't even factor for the Raspberry Pi revolution, which brought $35 home computers to so many Bitcoiners who can run a node on a $35 computer for four watts of power. Right. It just didn't consider any of that or cloud resources. Uh, The idea was very much. Hard drive sizes are getting larger. Internet speeds are getting faster. Let's just skate to where the puck's obviously going. And what's amazing is that these arguments around storage getting cheaper, you you literally hear them in, in Ethereum from Vitalik Buterin today, arguing that if the Ethereum blockchain balloons and is like, you know, what, what was the term? 83 terabytes a year is okay. 83 terabytes is a lot of data. I'll be frank. I do not have 83 terabytes of data at home. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting, right? Ethereum is now in a similar position. What are we going to do about these gas fees? These gas fees are too high. These gas fees are going to destroy us, right? Yeah. It feels like a similar type of conversation. Right, except unlike Bitcoin, Ethereum said, hey, let's scale layer one. Let's make the blocks faster. And I mean, they're raising the block. They're talking about raising the block size limit now in Ethereum, which is, again, it's a an arithmetic increase to solve a geometric problem. You don't need to think too long to know that that's probably not going to work. So what's really interesting is that at the time of the block size war, I think that no one really understood how Bitcoin worked because some of the proponents of the largest blocks, of larger blocks, were actually Bitcoin miners. And they thought that they controlled Bitcoin. And what was really interesting about the block size war was that everyone learned that it's actually the Raspberry Pi nodes. It's the distributed network of node operators who control Bitcoin. Because if the miner decides to to run a new client with new rules and bigger blocks, and he just starts or she just starts mining these bigger blocks, my node throws those blocks out. Yeah. We ignore them. You have to get the majority of the nodes to agree to these changes, to essentially adopt the new code. And if they don't, then the network doesn't have consensus. That's today even why I run a Bitcoin node, you know, just to participate in that. So I have a vote, essentially. And I think that's pretty powerful and why the block size does matter so much. And what does keep Bitcoin just a little bit ahead of everybody else in terms of true, genuine decentralization that actually matters, that can't actually be stopped? Sure. And so 11 years later, Bitcoin is still, there actually was a block size increase through SegWit, but this is a bit technical. Uh, it's, it's, it's in the book, so I encourage everyone to take a look if you're interested in this history. There's actually a lot of drama. So even if you're not very technical, you can read through it and just enjoy people sort of shouting at each other. Yep. I actually read the book with my wife and she found it. 
she's not technically interested in Bitcoin. She's interested in Bitcoin, a lot of the philosophical aspects of it, but she found the book to be really informational. And I'd say not entertaining, but enjoyable. You know, it's enjoyable. Okay, cool. And the other takeaway that I think is sort of important to remember is that Bitcoin does have an Achilles heel. And the Achilles heel is people. Because Bitcoin is money, and money is a social technology. And if you can convince enough people of something that isn't true, or you, you convince them of a kind of simplified version of the world, they will think they're acting in their best interests, and they will actually act against their interests. And I think this was, to me, the story of the, of the big block movement, because the big blockers really, their technical arguments for demanding larger blocks really didn't make sense. They were not very well thought out, and it became an incredibly emotional issue. It became, frankly, it became an issue of identity. This forced a lot of people to take a position that was very wrong, and the leaders of that movement never walked it back. You know, Gavin, I've never seen Gavin Andreessen say, you know, I'm sorry, I was completely wrong. No, they tried to fork it. And yeah. they tried to fork Bitcoin and, and do their own thing. It's just they all failed. Yeah. And, and the other, the other, another big block, uh, Mike Hearn, I mean, this is sort of a name and shame, to be honest. Um, <laughs> though Mike Hearn has, has a Medium blog, with, which uh, I find some of his articles kind of interesting. Huh. But, That's um, interesting. Okay. Yeah. But basically, <laughs> Mike wrote this uh, beautiful piece in 2016 about how Bitcoin is dead. Go and give that a read. It's quite a... I love those. Yeah, I love the Bitcoin is dead stuff. But it, it's the best Bitcoin is dead because he was actually a core developer. So most Bitcoin is dead pieces have a storyline such such like, well, over the past month, Bitcoin has lost 40% of its value, to which I would reply, well, over the past year, it's gone up 200%. So, you know, what's... Yeah, that's true. Huh, okay. You know, what, what struck me is you had that block size war, and I think that was absolutely fundamental in establishing Bitcoin uh, as hard money. And then I think you had the IRS in 2014 come out and say Bitcoin is property. And I think those those things came together and changed our mindsets from Bitcoin is something we're buying pizzas and GPUs with to Bitcoin is a store of value. And I, I think when we started thinking of Bitcoin more as digital property and less as digital cash or change what cash means, you know, in our heads, that's when I think that shift, that perspective of Bitcoin changed. And I think when that did happen, the price started to go up a lot more. That's also kind of correlates with when the price started to climb more. Hmm. Yeah, it's hard. Sounds like a chicken and egg problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I could see that, too. I think it, it took these things, though, for these realizations. And those of us that were around back then, now we just feel silly for how we just threw Bitcoin around. You know, like I one time was trying out a web wallet to review on a podcast. I threw 60 Bitcoin on there. 30 of them got stolen. Ouch. Yeah. It's just a day in Bitcoin, you know, back yeah. then. <laughs> just that was that was every that was a Tuesday in Bitcoin. <laughs> right. I mean, also reading the history is great because so many smart people were so completely wrong. For me, I think it helps you forgive yourself for all of the mistakes you made in Bitcoin, all the Bitcoin you lost, all the Bitcoin you spent to buy stuff on Newegg to buy a Bitcoin mining machine that never arrived. I did that too. I had a Butterfly Labs machine that never arrived. Oh, Butterfly Labs. I mean, someone needs to do like a documentary on them. Yeah. Maybe it would be, maybe it would be short. Scammers. If you want to, if you want to hear something fun, uh, I used to do a podcast called Plan B before there was a guy on Twitter calling himself Plan B. 
And in there, I document the whole, like, getting, ordering the Butterfly Labs ASIC, the fact that it never arrives. And, you know, the speeds back then were so pathetic, too. It was, like, 60 terahash. No, not terahash. Please. 60, 60, what would be under a terahash? Mega hashes? I can't so even remember. So, was, was, was it an FPGA? It might have been. It might not even been an ASIC. Okay. Yeah. It was so long ago. I can't remember now. Yeah. But that was just the transition around that time was when GPUs were just not really cutting it anymore. Huh. That's uh, that's really interesting. Okay, so our last section is corrections. And for our corrections for last episode, it's not so much a correction as a clarification. Because, Chris, you said something that I wanted to get back to, which was that a lot of altcoins today are basically non-Bitcoin cryptocurrency projects are proof of stake. And I said, that's really interesting. And I wanted to follow up and say that one interesting thing about proof of stake is that it ties up liquidity. And so... Right, when you're staking... When you're staking... The, the money is essentially locked into the network. You can't sell it. Let's play this out. If I were, let's say, a altcoin ICO scammer, and I created this thing out of thin air and convinced people it was money and got people to buy it, and then I conv- convinced them to stake it, it would actually allow me to sell more before other people could sell out and panic. Basically, proof of stake is great for pump and dumps. It's almost a pump and dump technology. I wonder if they would argue it's like the anti-pump and dump. Because everybody can't do a bank run, the money's locked in, the price can only drop so much. Could that be their view on it? It would only work if you could somehow guarantee that most of the coins were staked. And I don't think you can do that, especially with most altcoins have pre-mines where the backers and the developers give themselves a bunch of the supply, usually most of the supply. And the thing is, you don't have to be malicious for this to turn into a pump and dump. Let's say Chris and I create DadCoin, and we give ourselves 70% of the supply, and it's proof of stake. We might stake some of the coins we got, but we got 70%. Like, we got a lot of DadCoin. And the moment that that has even a penny's worth of value... Suddenly we've got millions and millions of, you know, imaginary U.S. dollars in our in our digital wallets. So the logical thing to do, like when you have not a lot of money, it makes sense to concentrate risk to sort of get bigger gains. But when you have a lot of money, the logical thing to do is to spread your risk, basically diversify to protect the value of this portfolio. And so we'll logically diversify. And if everyone staked their coins... It kind of looks like a pump and dump because we gave ourselves so much of the coins that when we diversify, we're going to dump a lot of coins. Yeah, I'm going to diversify right into Bitcoin. (laughs) Interestingly enough, I believe that is the case. Oh, yeah, for sure. If you talk to these altcoiners who are promoting all of these nonsense coins, you corner them in the Twitter DMs or in person, you chat, you'll discover that their personal allocation is like 80% Bitcoin. Yeah, Bitcoin and Ethereum. That's what they buy after they do their pump and dump is they go put it into Bitcoin or Ethereum. Absolutely. I've, that's something I've noticed. It's a big trend. And if you think about it, what else are they going to do with it? Cash it out? That's kind of a suspicious transaction. You do anything over $10,000 and the IRS is watching you. So sure. <laughs> what are they else are they going to do? Yeah. I mean, if you're willing to do a pump and dump, you're probably also not willing to pay your capital gains taxes. Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, we should have made DagCoin before we started the show, obviously. Clearly. Could have gotten rich. I know. Well, cat's out of the bag now. Yeah, guess, guess, now. We'll, guess we'll just have to be on the up and up. Yep, we just have to do the podcast. <laughs> Dang. And just on the subject of proof of stake, I linked to a piece by Tor Demister, who is a 
you know, sort of well-known in the Bitcoin space. I think he uh, started the first Bitcoin hedge fund. Okay. Uh, and he has a, a very concise little piece that talks about some of the, basically the theoretical holes in proof of stake. If you're investigating the space, if, if this is interesting to you, it's a short read and, and very informative. I will check that out myself. Where do they find those? Those links. Oh, the links. Yes, they are in our show notes. Yep. And our show notes are available on... Your podcast app, you're probably already yeah, listening on. Yeah, probably, prob- hopefully right there yeah. if, it's, uh, if it's been set up right. <laughs> if not, we should probably know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess we'll check. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of work. I don't know. We'll just wait for the feedback. <laughs> yeah, right. I'll, I just keep an eye on the email account. So please uh, remember, you can always reach out at uh, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter. And this has been the Bitcoin Dad and Chris. Chris. 